It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Richard, in our last episode, Philip K. Howard talked about the crisis in government and proposed some pretty radical reforms to change how we make our laws. Today, a crisis in journalism. Why is the media held in such low regard? And what can our industry, plus readers, viewers, and listeners, do about it? Yeah, Fixes for Journalism with Aaron Pilhofer and David Bornstein. You know, there was a New York Times opinion writer who said, all journalists should get off Twitter. And I think he's totally wrong. But this idea that you have to offer your opinion on something instantly is really caused a lot of people to look pretty stupid pretty quickly. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're journalists, Jim, and you and I, therefore, are held in low regard by most people. And it hurts. Yeah. A recent Gallup poll for the Knight Foundation finds that most U.S. adults say they personally have lost trust in the news media in recent years. And more than nine in 10 Republicans feel this way. But this is interesting, Jim. As, as, as the hopeful one here, seven in 10 of those people say that their trust could be restored. So maybe there's something that can be done. Aaron Pilhofer is a professor of journalism innovation at the Klein College of Media and Communication at Temple University. He calls himself a proud alumnus of The Guardian and The New York Times. Aaron told us that journalism is facing a trust crisis. It's the reason why we're seeing a degrading of the business model. It's the reason why we're seeing uh, people turning to alternative sources, why you're seeing people turn away from what we would look at as traditional news outlets toward things like Breitbart and the rest. I think it's everything. So a lot of people kind of woke up to this problem when they saw the rise of what people call fake news and and the influence of outlets like Breitbart. When I look at this, I kind of feel like, well, I'm glad you noticed this has been going on a long time. Both sides have their sources of news that tend to confirm what people already believe. Yeah, and, and let's be clear about this. I don't think that one side of the political spectrum or the other has a particular dominance in this in this area of fake news. This has been a, a bipartisan problem forever. Mm-hmm. I think what you're seeing now, though, uh, particularly with fake news, is you're seeing the rise of, of platforms, in particular Facebook, that supercharge these, uh, these kinds of messages in a way that um, is unprecedented. So if you have an algorithm that is designed to like stuff and, and 
promote stuff that makes them riles them up or or reinforces their their viewpoints if the algorithm favors that stuff you can see how it gradually pushes both sides into a more radical version, more emotional version of seeing reality. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the same the same elements of the algorithm that that would surface a cat photo or a photo of your niece or nephew also happens to work brilliantly to surface some of this fake news. And I think that really took folks like Mark Zuckerberg by surprise. One other problem we need to face is that people don't neatly divide into left or right groups. Uh, the largest number of people in the United States identify as independents. That's right. And yet many in the media, because conflict is so easy to report, set this up as a right versus left dichotomy rather than looking at the large numbers of people in some way in the center. Yeah, and and that's, you know, again, this goes back to the long history of sort of he said, she said journalism. So I was asking you how big is the crisis – it's a crisis for the business model of journalism as well as the way people view uh, reading something. Yeah. So, I mean, just to focus specifically on the business model, because in addition to my work in the newsroom at The Guardian, I actually served for years as the interim chief digital officer. So I was sort of on the executive side, which was fascinating and eye-opening. And I got to see this firsthand. I got to see how The Guardian, um, we had projected 10% year-on-year growth in digital ads in 2015 and actually saw a 3% Uh, decline, which was a shock. But it wasn't just us. You saw it happening to the New York Times. You saw it happening to all the big media companies. Which which for people who don't follow journalism was uh, a big shock and extremely depressing for all of us who work in journalism because that was going to be the savior. I mean, that was the business model, right? That we were going to build growth. We were going to scale. That was the model, but that's just absolutely falling apart right now. And it's, it's, impossible to overemphasize what a vast change there is now in the way that the listener or the reader gets his or her information. Just recently, as you mentioned, I I am now um, a professor, so I I teach students who are, let's just say, much younger than me. And, you know, the way they get news is the way most people get news at that age. It finds them. Um, they will find it through Facebook. They'll find it through Twitter. They'll find it through social feeds. They will find, you know, the news, if it's important enough, will find them, which is such a different model from when we were younger. So rather than being edited and curated, it's, it's part of a conversation. Exactly. It's coming from someone you know, someone you follow. It's part of a network. And it's about trust. Mm-hmm. You know, it's proven that when people read when they read news stories in the social feeds, a lot of times they'll, they'll tap through, they'll read a piece, and they'll come back to Facebook or whatever it is and have no idea that they had just visited The Economist or The Wall Street Journal or The New York Times. They'll have no idea. But they will know the provenance of that story because it's something that a friend shared with you, someone you trust, someone you know, someone you follow. So it has, this gets back to this whole trust problem that we have. So it sounds like we're still spinning, that the journalists, wherever they work, whether it's uh, at an online site or at the Des Moines Register or at The Economist or The New York Times, that we're still really struggling to catch up with this new world and we haven't quite got this right yet. Not even close. Aaron Pilhofer on episode 107 of How Do We Fix It? You know, we did that show a while ago, and so much of what we talked about with Aaron has really become even more intense, I think, over the the intervening time. And just recently, we've had a number of incidents where 
people are just kind of, you know, going at each other over stories that emerge in the media. And also this alarming thing that may well be influencing why journalists are talking the way they are on social media is that many people, in fact, most people are getting their news from sites such as Facebook or Twitter. And we saw that very recently with the story about the Covington Catholic kids. This is the one where these kids from Kentucky were on a, they were participating in the uh, Right to Life march, and some of them had MAGA hats on. And then this short video came out showing them taunting this elderly Native American person. Yeah, that was, those were the first, the first accounts, the boys menacing, taunting a Native American man. And, and that was the early version or very brief version of a video that first came out. In fact, the first headline in the New York Times was boys in Make America Great Again hats mob very emotive word that, mob, native elder in Indigenous Peoples March. Right. So then, you know, that was based on just a few seconds of video. And they, I think the pressure of social media and the pressure of online news media, you don't even wait for the paper to print that night anymore. That leads people to want to jump on these these viral stories they didn't have much to go on, and I think they led more with their gut than any real information they had because the very next day they had to come around and their headline read, Fuller Picture Emerges of Viral Video of Native American Man and Catholic Students. Yeah, the fuller picture was that he'd actually approached them and that this whole thing had been preceded by an hour or more of the boys being taunted by this crazy group called the, the, uh, the Black Hebrew Israelites. And it was a completely different picture that almost thoroughly debunked the first impression. And yet the idea that these kids were some kind of racist Ku Klux Klan mob still didn't completely go away. Whoopi Goldberg on The View asked, why do we keep making the same mistake? <laughs> we being the media. And, and one of her colleagues, I actually find the view very interesting sometimes. One of her colleagues, Joy Behar, who's a liberal, answered, because we are desperate to get Trump out of office. She right. said, I, th I think the press jumps the gun a lot because we have so much circumstantial evidence against Trump that we're hoping that uh, we can find things, make him go away, even if it's wishful thinking. Yeah. yeah, a friend of mine said something very much like that, talking about the Mueller investigation. He said, I don't even care if it's true or not, as long as it gets him out of office. Um, and the reason I mentioned social media up top is one thing that's revealing for me is a lot of journalists who are pretty careful in print or when they go on the air and they're scripted are really unrestrained when they're, especially on Twitter, where they kind of feel like they're talking mostly to their colleagues. And believe me, anybody who's listening to the show, I'm no defender of Trump, but I find that they almost make his case for him when they double down on all these stories instantly without taking that moment to to reflect, you know, what some people call the 48-hour rule when some big incident happens, that time to reflect, get the information – People in the media keep saying, oh, you have to trust us because we're professionals and we're trained. But when they don't use their training on social media or in, in, in their coverage, then they're kind of asking for people not to trust them. I think the problem, the biggest problem is piling on. And what you mentioned, the 48-hour the rule, that you wait for a story to settle a little bit before you offer your opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a New York Times opinion writer who said, all journalists should get off Twitter. And I think he's totally wrong. For me, reading Twitter 
because I follow people I don't agree with is, is a way to open up what I'm reading and what I'm kind of coming across rather than narrowing it down. But this idea that you have to offer your opinion on something instantly is really caused a lot of people to look pretty stupid pretty quickly. But for me as a journalist, but mostly as a news consumer, I find it so useful. I follow all these people who are experts in nuclear energy and alternative and you know energy, which are topics that I that I cover. I follow people that I I disagree with, you know. I follow the the editor of Mother Jones who's really really interesting and informative even though I don't agree with the political viewpoints a lot of the time. It's helpful for me to see those arguments to think about them. The show is about journalism in crisis. And before we we look at a few solutions, one thing I got to mention is the decline in local journalism, which is a huge problem. I mean, as recently as 2000, classified ads were the biggest source of advertising revenue for most newspapers. And now they've completely gone away. And that has undermine the business model of, of a huge number of, of local outlets. And papers that used to do really good work at local investigative journalism are, are not doing it anymore because they don't have the staff. I don't know if there's any real answer to it, but it's worrisome because not everything important happens at the White House or in Congress. A lot of things happen at the state level or the city level, and those need to be covered. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're going to talk next about a few solutions if they're really out there. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, solutions are like the big theme of our show. And one thing that's been so much fun for me is getting all these great people on. And one of them is David Bornstein of the Solutions Journalism Network. Yeah, it's a group that helps journalists who are interested in reporting on creative responses to social problems. In other words, solutions coverage, uh, looking at not only what's wrong, but what might work. And, and to put things right, after many years as a reporter and journalist, why was he drawn to being a solutions journalist? Really, it was a very personal thing for me. I, I, um, my, my mother passed away, and I used to call my father in Montreal after she died, and he would stay up late watching the news. And one day I, I called him on the phone at 1130. I said, hey, Dad, how are you feeling? And he, was, he had this heavy voice 
uh, and he said, Dave, I'm convinced that human beings are worse than animals. And I was just like, Dad, are you watching CNN? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he was. And I thought, you know, on top of the indignity and all the problems that people have in their personal lives, to have to get this toxic waste, you know, through the airwaves, that is a, it's a hall of mirrors view of the world. It's not a mirror of society. It's a hall of mirrors. It's, it's a terrible distortion. It brings people down, and it's not even fully true. And it changes people's behavior in their lives sometimes in negative ways. One guest that we've had on the show, uh, Lenore Skenazy, who has this blog, Free Range Kids. She's an advocate for letting, giving kids more freedom. And she very persuasively argues that all these images and stories about you know, children being abducted and, and sexual abuse of children, it happens. It's true. But it happens a lot less than we all think it does. But people respond to this very small risk by overreacting and pretty much locking their kids up and not giving them the freedom to roam and explore and learn. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the kinds of stranger abductions that she's talking about are incredibly rare. The NISMAT federal database shows that they're tiny, 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 and they really haven't changed for many, many years. But people do have this surveillance of their kids. You don't leave your kids out of the out of your view for five minutes. And it probably contributes to a lot of child obesity and a whole range of other problems. This phrase, solutions journalism, what is it? It's um, an effort by a group of journalists to get uh, newsrooms around the country and journalists to regularly report more on how people are trying to solve social problems, but to do it in a rigorous way without fluffery um, and really look at the activity out there and what things are producing results and what can we learn from them that can help other communities uh, do the same. Why do we need solutions journalism? Journalism is very biased in general. You know, the, the idea of what, what is newsworthy is, tends to be problems, scandals, corruption. I think journalists believe that Primarily, the main job of the press is to be a watchdog and to point out shortcomings and, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and all that. Um, so as a result, the news tends to focus far more on what's wrong than on the credible efforts uh, around the world of people who are trying to fix things, whether they're successful or not. So it's a little imbalanced. You know, it's so funny. I I see this all the time in uh, people's perceptions of the world. You know, you see people have this idea that the um, the environment's way worse than it used to be when, in fact, in many ways it's gotten better. And they don't really appreciate the degree to which say, poverty has fallen globally and things like that. And so there is, I think, the negative news coverage can feed a certain passivity. Yeah, that's right. And news is a feedback system that if we applied it at the personal level, if we woke up every morning and said, I want my son to be a better person, so I'm going to point out everything he did wrong yesterday, um, you know, he would end up, you know, in an institution. Um, <laughs> what we do uh, as journalists in some ways is we do that to society writ large, and we end up making people feel... Uh, falsely that problems can't be solved and unduly pessimistic. And, you know, the, the definition of a cynic is someone who's prematurely disappointed in the future. Um, you're right. There, there are a lot of great challenges in our world today and some problems that have gotten much worse. But then there's tremendous gains that have been made in, in areas. And so to have a balanced view, that's what news should provide people. And unfortunately, it mostly only gives half the story. But David Bornstein, is part of this because journalists are lazy I mean, it's much easier to report catastrophes and controversies and, and contests than it is the quiet drip, drip, drip of improvement. I mean, that's usually less dramatic. I, I, I've not found too many lazy journalists. I really don't think that they're that lazy. Um, I think the main thing is that the problems scream and the solutions whisper. 
Problems are always clamoring for attention. Solutions, you really do have to be proactive and go look for them. There's Historically, journalists feel uncomfortable writing about responses to problems. They worry about being called advocates. They worried about falling into hero worship or fluffery. Um, and historically, you know, there's been such a tremendous and noble role of journalists in the 20th century in, you know, in the watchdog role in bringing down a corrupt president or Standard Oil, if you go back to the beginning of the century. The stories of how journalists help society improve primarily by shining lights on the dark corners has come to animate the whole profession. And I think that there's just a big omission. As you say, that these are quieter stories, but for example, better ways to um, improve discipline in schools, a major, major problem. Yeah, exactly right. The journalists tend to find the worst school, the worst police department, and pounce on them and, and get people to be angry and outraged at the problem with the idea that this will create energy around solving it. But to the degree that anyone in society knows how to improve school discipline or reduce the dropout rate or police without using excessive force, it's going to be the positive deviance. It's going to be the few places, uh, relatively few places that have solutions. And so if you report on those people, you can actually uh, uh, elevate ideas that could be of help to lots of other people. David Bornstein of Solutions Journalism Network. You know, Jim, and a couple of things just to point out about Solutions Journalism Network, uh, things that they are not. They are not simply about good news stories or, or trying to convince the world that things are okay. And they don't want journalists to tell people what to think. What they're simply saying is we should cover people who may have some interesting or creative ideas on, on a social problem. That is such an important mission for journalism, but also it's a real subtle yet deep reorientation of how I think a lot of journalists have started working these days. There's this real temptation in certain fields to sort of, you know, have a kind of a, a chalkboard in your mind like, oh, here's one for my team. Here's, you know, here's one that criticizes their team and to kind of, you know, subtly politicize a lot of your coverage based on your own political values. And those ends are not just political. For instance, I think that a lot of us could do with reading the financial press more than we do because they cover business in an informed way. And, and the journalists usually that are on financial and business publications really know how businesses work. And a lot of the most interesting and creative ideas that are neither comforting to the left nor the right come from business. I, I, I totally agree. Most of us as journalists, we weren't really that interested in business. That's why we went into journalism. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have, you know, worked for banks and stuff. Another category that I think is important is local and regional journalism. I'm doing an article right now about the future of work. And, you know, there's this big labor shortage in skilled workers right now. I found out about this one wire factory in Indiana, and the owner's doing this amazing thing. He's offering drug counseling to his workers if they fail a drug test. And he's even doing it for job applicants. Like if somebody comes in and they fail the drug test, he doesn't immediately just write them off. He sends them off for consultation. And if it looks like they're not a horrible end-of-the-line addict maybe, but they've, you know, they've got a little issue – He'll help them get treated and then bring them on and train them and monitor them carefully. But what a humane and interesting idea. And, of course, he's doing it 
not just to be a humanitarian. This is good business for him. But that's a really fascinating local example of something important that nobody in Washington would have dreamed up in a million years. Yeah, that that reminds me of the episode we did with Brian Hamilton, the entrepreneur who's involved in uh, the group Inmates to Entrepreneurs that was launched in in North Carolina that that helps people who are coming out of prison find jobs. Yes. Ironically, the vilified Koch brothers have been a real powerhouse in promoting this idea of helping people with felony convictions get hired and be reintegrated into the workforce. But there are also some ideas that come from the left that need to be looked at carefully, especially I'm thinking of of Black Lives Matter. And when that began, I don't think they were getting full coverage. And some of what they said about not just the way that the police treat African-American men, but also just the whole issue of how property is often confiscated yes. in, in some areas, I thought was really fascinating. And so it's not just a question of liberals reading more conservative websites or conservatives reading more no, liberal no, websites. Right. It's, it's looking at the voices from the margins as well right. to see what they're saying about the way they live their lives that, that could be helpful to the rest of us. Another way to find information that you might not be comfortable with but can enhance your worldview is literally to go and read or or watch foreign media sometimes. Mm -hmm. I find that some of the very best coverage of, of America is sometimes from the way that overseas correspondents view us. The Economist is particularly good. And then in in the Middle East, the Jerusalem Post on the right and Haaretz on the left in Israel. Very interesting to look at what they're saying and how they view the world. Yes. Actually, you know, you got me a a subscription to The Economist for for Christmas last year. And I have to... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, it's become really an important part of my media landscape. One of the few publications I still read on paper. And what I love is their dedication to saying, like, what's going on with the elections in India? And I'm like, wait, elections in India? I didn't even know about, you know. And you and you get these great little snapshots of what's happening around the world. We, it's too easy to be insular here in the U.S. And, and so sometimes, you know, you need to push yourself a little bit to broaden your perspective. And it's, um, and once you do, you find out it's actually quite interesting, but you might not stumble on it. You have to seek it. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And that's our episode on the crisis in journalism. We did Thanks not solve us. this. We didn't, Richard, we, came, we did not even begin we, <laughs> to solve the crisis in journalism. But we did have, just, have a few thoughts about at least diversifying our... our just, you know, I'm just ra- wrapping uh, up here smoothly, Jim. I and, know. And, sorry to derail the so, train as always. I, 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 th- I think we need our sound effect of dropping the china. <laughs> <laughs> our producer is Miranda Schaefer, who makes us sound better every week. And our music is by Luz Travinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.